new for 96 with your hosts Kevin McCauley and Chris Nguyen. On my end with my connection it was spot on. This is terrible. We have a delay. It's fine. I don't know about that. I really don't see how it's going to impact the quality. Well, you can only make it better, more interesting. Yeah. The patina. How are you today? I am fine today. My drink is sweating severely. I'm not going to lie. I've already had two before the recording while waiting for you. Once again, Mm. uh, Kevin has damaged more than one of my tables uh, when I let the candle (laughs) melt all the way down to the holder while waiting for him to appear. We were supposed to record yesterday, and Kevin was occupied with another call. And I had opened a meeting, like an online web meeting, and I was waiting there, and I was just uh, like staring at myself through the uh, meeting app, uh, and Kevin didn't show up. So I texted you eventually. You said okay, or no, you said like, you said something very generic, like not like a five more minutes, more like a like, uh, need more time. <laughs> oh, that's whatever that, is what that I meant. Said. That is what I said, yeah. You said something like that. At least me, even though I am perpetually late for everything, mm-hmm. uh, I will text you five minutes, five minutes out when, every 15 minutes. <laughs> so that you at least have some sense of expectation. Yes. Hmm. Anyways, how are you? Uh, I'm okay. It's been a while since yeah. we recorded. We haven't recorded for It's been like two, weeks. two and a half weeks. But here's the thing. Yeah. <laughs> I have been outside a limited amount of number of times uh in the last two weeks. So sure. not a lot can happen. No, I know. Nothing's uh, happened. Yeah, there was that giant spider in my house, which is the reason why I moved. Yeah, you told me about um, that three times. It was very large. It was worth. It was large enough to mention three times. How is your motivation these days? We're still dealing with COVID and quarantine. We are, even though, like, I guess... Uh, a good portion of the world is having their own moment in trying to declare the virus over. Um, but as that goes... You have to hear both sides. Right. Um, yeah, still quarantined. Uh, going out. I'm, seeing, I'm going out and seeing people at a distance more often now, I think. Like drive-bys mm-hmm. uh, and driveway visits and whatnot um but uh not so much with the you know making out and whatever else that you do with your friends Mm -hmm. Um, of course yeah yeah uh what about you uh yeah i mean i just feel uh a little unmotivated I (laughs) i just like that, so we're we're um, we are on Zoom right now, and your eyes are just darting across the room. Oh, because alarming frequency. Laura was like peeking into the room and closing the door. Oh, I thought it was a cat again. Uh, yeah, that too. So yeah, 
we both sort of struggled to get this recording done. I think it's somehow, even though there's nothing to do, I feel like I have more time commitments. And I guess it's just a factor of having even worse uh, time management where it's like, yeah. it just takes me forever to do so little. And then it's like, oh, it's nine o'clock now. Well, I mean, I look at the watch and I'm like, shit, I'm supposed to be upstairs. Mm -hmm. I'm late. Yeah. Yeah. I am getting a lot done, uh, but time moves faster somehow when you have, like, the confines are your house. Uh, so I don't understand that. But I did design an entire house, mm -hmm. speaking of houses, uh, which you saw a preview of. Yeah when you visited my sidewalk and uh, I showed you from a distance via my computer. So you basically, you saw like, you were looking at my 15 inch laptop from like six to 10 feet away. Right. Uh, so I don't know that you could actually see much, but we also could have also done that on Zoom so that you could have actually seen. No, I could see, I could see. I guess, yeah. it's a house, you know? It's no, it's very impressive. Walls. Very, very cool. Oh, you, my God. You were very excited about it, rightly. I was very excited rightly, about it. Rightly, and you worked really hard on it, and it showed, and it was I did. impressive. Because I found, the story is that I found this lot, uh, and I've been wanting to build, design and build a house uh, that is automotive-oriented without being, like, uh, overbearing. Like, it was designed by Binford Tools. So you're going to have uh, old... Uh, gas station signs. Yep. Oil barrel uh, seats. Yep. You know, oil, ba oil bar barrel furniture. Considering they're paying me to take oil barrels right now. Yeah, exactly. Why not capitalize? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No. Uh, so maybe we can post like a snippet of this a, online. But basically, a couch made from like the front clip of a Bel Air. Yeah. Yeah. How did you know? The checkered Race car beds. The checkered linoleum floor. Yes, like, you know, checkered flag. I've basically stolen it from uh, the ultimate tool time house. Yeah. Although here's the thing. So when I was a kid and watching tool time, tool time, um, home improvement. Mm -hmm. um, and whenever he does like they had like, you know, it was always like man related. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like the man, man the man's bathroom, the man's kitchen. Yeah. Stuff like that. And it, all of the modifications were predictably stupid. It was really terrible, but I was always so excited. Like, those were some of my favorite episodes when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, just because they were, like, designing a space. And, of course, inevitably, it was just, like, something stupid. It would just be, like, full of, like, exploding, like, toilets or something. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. He yeah. really was, like, the Clarkson of his day. Where he, really he would was. he would ruin something because it had too much power, and suddenly like the blender blows up his perfect man's kitchen because he put is, because it has nine hundred horsepower to a blender. Yeah, that is kind of the take of the week. I'm going to declare it because I've never made that I, I, before. I had not either. But uh, I would have thought your favorite episode was when they have the band of construction workers that play. Uh, like saws and and hit things. That was drums. they played green sleeves, mm -hmm. uh, and that was very moving. Hey, I show cried some respect. Those guys were Mumford and Sons. 
well, that just shows our level of sophistication here in the United States mm -hmm. that our Jeremy Clarkson is, uh, I was going to call him Tim Taylor. Now I can't recall his real name. Tim, Tim Allen. Tim Allen. Yeah. Dear Lord. Um, who had like, even though he was very American car oriented, had some kind of cool cars. Uh, not on the show. Yeah, Never on the show. Not on the show. <laughs> no, they were always like uh, hot rods, like you would see on Hot Rod magazine, the cover. Yeah, up. it's like uh, oh, we're doing this royal blue tea bucket with the you know this. Yeah. Oh, oh. It was always, even his. So it's like oh, it could have he could have built anything he wanted. He always built something I was like could not even be remotely interested in. No, even his wife had a cooler car. She had an Austin Healey. Oh yeah. Uh, and Al, who married into money had the, I think he had like a GTO, a Ferrari GTO or something like that. What? Yeah. Okay, we're going to be all that? over the internet car movie database after this. Okay. To look this you up. Will, this will be confirmed because that was part of the storyline. Um, anyways, but in real life, all I remember is that he, had a, he was uh, known for having a uh, Impala SS, mm -hmm. which was period cool. Um, and he had a Torah show, and which was featured in the Santa, the Santa Claus. Claus. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's all I know that he had. I'm sure he had other cars. I, I think all those stupid cars on the show were like his cars. I could see that. I don't know. Yes. Mm. The hot, uh, the like 48 Fords. And I don't know why, like, that's a thing. Like, is a 48 Ford different from like a 47 Ford or? Yeah. That was the whole Ford? thing is they were different like every year. I guess that's true. Yeah, you're right. So you might like, um, like there would be one where the window line is cooler or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, do you ever get like in your car in the your 1980 911 SC? Uh, do you ever get people who stop to talk to you about the car, and they try to guess the year of the car all the like, time? Hey, all the time. Is that a is that a '69? Yeah. Is that a 80, 80, uh, 82 and a half. All and the time. And there's nothing specific about any of those years, but for some reason, yeah, so they, people do that all the time with me, and they're like, oh, yeah, uh, hey, what is that, a 1998? <laughs> uh, it's an 86 Carrera, but, um, but I, acknowledge, I have to acknowledge them like, oh, clearly you are a man of knowledge, and I will... Uh, Subtly correct you. Yeah, uh, that you now. were within a decade almost. You get a gold star. <laughs> yeah, I just wonder what the inclination is to assign like a year to because I think people just do that in general when they're trying to talk about old cars uh, if they don't know anything about like the specifics of like an era or a specific platform or whatever they just go for the year. I think it's like, like a I think it's a good generic icebreaker, and then also maybe if. He's gonna go home and tell his brother or something or his wife, like, oh, I saw an 86 Porsche today. You know, it's like yeah. you can take that piece of information and then when you retell the experience, if you do, I'm making a lot of assumptions here. If if he were to recall the experience later, it's like, oh, yeah, that was an 86. So yeah. the next gas station he goes to, he sees a 97, <laughs> he knows the difference. Yeah. I think at the next time I may not correct them mm. and just let him go home and uh, tell a significant other that he did indeed see it in 18 Duesenberg. Yeah. And uh, he's very wise because he guessed the exact year. 
Yeah, he could be yeah. he could be wafting home on that self satisfaction. Hell yeah, of being right. Uh, amazing. Um, we are not purveyors of truth here on this program. Yeah. So, uh, speaking of this program, thanks for tuning into another episode of New, New for ninety six. What were you trying to do? Were we were we trying to sync? And that's as close as we got. Or are you doing something different? That was my best effort. Uh, so it's all we can hope for. It's all we can hope for. So we are recording, of course, remotely at uh, our respective compounds in different cities because Kevin lives outside of the 610 loop in Houston. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, episode 53. Wow. Special edition. Yeah. Special episode. We have to have like a heartwarming episode one of these days where... We learn a lesson. Oh, yeah. You, yeah. especially. Someone should learn something as a result of all Someone of this. Someone should learn something. <laughs> Certainly not the listeners. It's, no, no, not at episode all. Episode 53, it feels like a mere three weeks ago we were just on episode 52. I know. Isn't that a funny thing? Mm-hmm. Uh, also, when I said that I had had two drinks earlier, I didn't mean that to frame that in a, uh, like, I'm already drunk type of way. Although I'm slightly buzzed. Well, how else could you possibly frame that? No. Whatever. Um, what is... I was about to say, like, I'm half in the bag. What, is, what does that mean? Like, were people... Oh, I guess... Does it mean, like, a paper bag? Like, you're halfway through your paper bag of alcohol? Mm, or maybe, like, people used to refer to their bed as their bag. So it's like, I'm... I'm so drunk. I'm halfway to bed, passed out. Maybe in the bed. In the bed was the bag. Boy, you really shat the bag there. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I would think like if it had something to do with a paper bag, that it would be better, or you'd be more drunk if you were all the way in the bag. What What is three sheets to the wind? I don't know. Is that the right number of sheets for the expression? the third sheet is when you're really gone. Yeah. But two sheets, you're okay. One sheet, you know. You're recording a podcast. You're recording a podcast, but by the end. Oh, um, yeah. Four sheets, baby. <laughs> Don't you worry. Yeah. If you rate us, please give us four sheets on iTunes. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. That would be We've amazing. Earned it. I'm drinking oh, wine today. I saw that. That's wine. really weird. You're drinking it out of a mug, which is impressive. No, it's a stemless wine glass. <laughs> because you are I can't... <laughs> rephrasing a popular Jim Gaffigan joke, I believe. I am unfamiliar. Oh. Um, I just figured you didn't want to see how much you you didn't me, want to you didn't want me to see how much you were drinking. So the mug hides everything. It's very clever. Mm, yeah, it is. But less clever now that I know what your rationale is. Yes. Um. Anyways. Yeah. Uh, what do we got um, today? Speaking of cars, mm. um, I, have, I haven't driven much. Every once in a while, I'll go and start up the cars and like take it for a loop just to warm them up. But I haven't done that in over a week, except for the LX. Um, how how are your how is your stable doing? Um, well, I fixed the 911 last weekend. Yeah, uh, I, the, I replaced uh, the blower load bearing. Motor. Yeah, the the blower motor. So I mean, it was it was in the garage for like three weeks. I could have 
plug the battery back, you know, back in and driven it without that. But it was all like the front. You, it was all taken apart and everything. So I didn't. Now you have to reset the. Um, the it's very complicated to reset the quartz clock. Yeah, exactly. So um, I'm looking in the manual about doing that. But yeah, I actually yeah. fixed something and it's good. So I drove it around uh, Monday and stopped by your house after yeah. getting some coffee uh, beans to take home. And then, uh, yeah, it's supposed to rain, I think, all weekend. So I probably won't drive it because it's clean. Yeah, I wanted to go. <laughs> I wanted to go out as well. And my car is not only clean, but the front trunk leaks. So. Mm. Um, I will definitely not be taking it out. Uh, I haven't had the carpet in it since the Hill Country Rally. Um, I like took it out to dry it because just moisture in the air had moistened the carpet and I left it out. Now it's just out. So there's no like absorbing pad. Well, yeah, it should get I, wet again. I left all the carpet out also and I forgot to put it back in and I went to the grocery store and I, ha I actually bought like a full amount of groceries. <laughs> and so I had to, I put a lot of it in the back seat, but I put a lot like in the front trunk, just on top of the gas tank. Yeah. Well, that's fine. It's not toxic. Mm -hmm. Um, a completely full I, gas tank, by the way. Yeah. Well, uh, the scotch tape that um, acts as a gasket, mm -hmm. I'm sure, will keep all that, yeah, the toxins in. Yeah. Um, but I, I've never been able to fit much in the front trunk as far as useful groceries go. Like I will have to take all the lacroix out of the box in order <laughs> to fit them, um, and that's about it. So also. I don't trust the cleanliness of that carpet, as in, it looks very clean. So I have like plush beige carpeting for the front trunk, um, but on the underside, like the thatch portion of the fabric, or the uh, the matting on, on on the underside, you can see years worth of staining mm. um, that has not been, I guess, cleaned off. So the carpet part is cleaned off, but the matting has not been. Uh, so I don't ever put anything that I end up eating in the front trunk because I'm slightly afraid, uh, of what that food is absorbing when it's in the front trunk. I'm sure it's fine. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. You sound like the worst kind of doctor. <laughs> Just like toxins. I was like, yeah, I'm sure you're fine. Yeah, I think so. Um, the Lexus is fine. I think I drove yep. it a couple days ago for some reason. The the clear coat is like advanced like advanced deteriorating. Oh no. Like, it's accelerating? It is. Even with the car cover? Uh well I'll I'll take the car cover off and then it stays off. So I'll like have the car cover on for a week and then I'll drive it and leave the car cover off and then it gets rained on and dirty and everything. So Yeah. But yeah, like I'll go out and I'll see condensation under like part of the clear and i'm like oh this is some clear that is about to die uh, it's not i good. have never seen that condensation under the clear well just near one of the tears so so on the car there's like five four spots there was three spots now there's like five spots where clear coat is just peeling and so it's like this yeah. little crater i guess on the hood yeah. of clear coat and so that all the edges around where it peeled, it'll be a hole in the clear coat, like a hole in the ozone layer. That's more a prop, uh, yeah. more appropriate yeah, there you go. analogy. 
the areas around that will get seepage underneath. Oh, and that's weird. how you know that that set another like one inch section of clear coat <laughs> is about to fly off. I mean, you might as well just let it all peel off, and then it'll be Matt consistent Silver. at least. Yeah, yeah. Frozen grave. Um, frozen grave, you will. Uh, I've always been afraid of that happening. My paint, the metal, the metallic portion of my paint is fine, but the plastic trim has like faded to matte uh, on the LX470 and uh, it's just sitting out there. Although I guess it's no different if I'm using it, it's still outside. Um, but I have no way, I don't know how to protect that. I mean, I'm probably just eventually gonna have it repainted, um, but it seems kind of inevitable. And we've already talked about like the, the weird quality of paint uh, that Toyota implemented during this era. <laughs> yeah. Like basically 2000 and 2006 or something. It's just not good. Yeah. Um, Don't look at the roof of any Corolla. Yeah. It, which is even worse because it's rusted. It's somehow it's enhanced. It's, yeah, it's so bad. Yeah. Um, but, I, oh, the other day, I did take the uh, LX470 out and because there's... Traffic is a little bit lighter at certain times. Um, I took it out in high mode because I'd never driven it uh, when it's lifted. So it raises it about uh, up to two inches. And I, you can only drive it, I think, like up to 18 miles an hour in high mode. Uh, otherwise, it just drops back into normal. So I drove it all the way to Blacksmith, the nearby coffee shop, which is like maybe a mile away. No, it's like half a mile away. Uh, in high mode, just to wow. get a sense of its off-road prowess. Mm -hmm. And it did just fine. Great. At 18 miles an hour. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's exciting. Um, apparently, you can, you can lock it in high mode through some sort of hack. But I feel like anytime you mess with adjustable suspension, it will like, yeah. it just accelerates its failure. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. Yeah. How is the how is the aviator? I happened to find in my feed the other day an advertisement. Oh no. Cuz yeah. we were talking about it. I and thought it was listened. Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. So I but it was you. I there's one feature that I actually appreciate. Um that is very unexpected and it is the it's like the electronic door release it's the weirdest thing like the so you know when you open the door or from the inside or the outside it's like you push a button and it unlatches the door and kind of like pops it out which like a door handle would do um kind of like like on a like a front trunk on a porsche yeah like that so getting in the car it's stupid because you're pulling on this handle that doesn't actually pull you're just you're just like pushing a button on the underside of the you know like phone handle type door handle but with the c7 corvette exactly but from the inside and i've driven corvettes that have this driven like the cts coupe that had this and stuff but from the inside i am appreciating now like when you push a button on the door and then push the door out like it is a nice seamless one motion and you think about when you're in another car i know this sounds like really like such a minor thing but you th when you're in another car you have to pull the handle 
and to latch unlatch it and then push it. The, so it's like a very like disjointed <laughs> motion. And I know this is like such a small thing, but it makes a difference. I will have to try this in your car because I because it's still two two steps. No, because on, from the inside, you are pushing a button with your thumb and you're pushing the door out. So you are never like pulling something and then pushing the exact same thing. Um, I have to like I cannot imagine this. It uh, it is just like a nice thing because it's like oh it's one range of motion instead of pulling a door handle and then where is the button? It's on the it's like where your thumb falls when you grab the door handle, like when you grab okay. the the interior door handle to push out. It is like you mean like where your hand would fall if you were to say like pull on a lever yeah but you're using your thumb to push a button you're not pulling see you're never pulling in the car you are only pushing outward one mustn't pull no pulls it's an it's a vulgar action um and as a reminder uh of the aviator kevin if you want to explain the context. oh yeah um i have an aviator for a while uh to take pictures of but then they because of COVID, the posting plan is a little bit postponed. So, T TBD. TBD. Yeah. Uh, it's, a nice, it's a nice car. It is. It's very comfortable. Uh, yeah. I like the way it looks from many of the angles, and it's a uh, good color. Yeah. And uh, it's red, metallic, and uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's neat having like lots of luxuries and gadgets and CarPlay and all that. Yeah, um, this feature that you're talking about, I almost it, I wish like it had like elbow detection because I I use my elbow to push out the door of the car. I feel like okay, or maybe I'm wrong. I, I actually have never thought about like how I open doors from the interior, but this is like uh, like trust me. I know it's I know I sound crazy, <laughs> and the first like the first month and a half i was never like oh i'm so excited to have this button to push the door out but as i go back to driving my cars i'm like oh i gotta pull something and then completely change my motion and reverse it and then push the okay. door okay can we uh, can we address um some things here related to demographics and um issues that may arise mm -hmm. advance your age like 40 years and the battery dies okay how do you open the door i don't know okay i'm sure well, there's like a manual you're thing. living in it yeah exactly <laughs> i'm sure there is a manual thing um why not just have the manual thing because this is easier it really makes a difference i wish it had like elbow activation although i guess if you leaned on it it would open i don't know i'm not a car engineer you were just like you are just trying to tell me I'm wrong. Like, you are nonsensical now saying, trying to find reasons know. why it's not actually a good feature. Do you find, like, if you go back into a car with the, uh, uh, to unlock, you have to double, double pull on the handle, interior handle, to get out of the car? Do you find that annoying now? That I just told you, I find it annoying to, like, pull a door handle and then push the door. It's a minor thing. It doesn't make a big difference, but it is like it makes you realize that it is a like incongruous motion to do. 
I guess. I'm going to have to try this out. Okay. I have to see. I'll yeah. be convinced. All right. Maybe. Well, maybe when COVID's uh, over. Maybe. I, uh, okay, so the most... What is the... Okay, let's take a step down from that. What is the uh, most clever interior physical handle, like real door release that you have encountered? Oh my God, I'll have to think about that. I, it's not something I think about very often. I will, I, so I will tell you one thing. This is like a little bit uh, cheaty, I guess. But mm -hmm. back at like a year and a half ago when Chris Perkins and I we were in LA to shoot two 911s, very different. It was the, the Carrera T991. Yep. And yeah. uh, uh, Matt Farah's 911 Safari. And yeah. both of them had, uh, both of them had like nylon door pulls. Oh yeah, But that's right. But both of them worked like completely differently. <laughs> Because I I rode in I rode in Matt Ferris Safari, and right. I got in and out of it a few times. And I rode in the you know I rode and drove the Carrera T, so we had it for yeah. a few days. And somehow I don't remember the exact specifics, but the way that the nylon door pull was mounted, the part that you pull on, like the tension, like the action was different on both, like very different. I okay. Here's the thing: I can totally see that because I feel like on the newer car. It's probably a shorter, more precise action mm -hmm. that you just pull straight out versus pulling, I don't know, down. Yeah, I, I think you pulled in a different direction, and I think it's a little bit more ergonomic on, like, the newer yeah. one because it's kind of designed to be that way, whereas it's, like, a retrofit yeah. on an 80s car. Yeah, I'm just imagining, like, positioning because on the newer one, it's high up um, where the door handle... Well, I guess it's they're both where the door handles well, would be. Yeah, even so, just just an example. I can't remember the exact specifics, but think about a nylon door pull. It's a loop, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that on one of them, so it is a like fixed, like so one end is fixed and the other yeah. end is spring is sprung. You know, is as a pull. I believe on one of them, like the top was the actual part that gave, and on ah. the other one, the bottom was the part that gave. Like it was oh, that weird. different. Oh, that is weird. Um, okay. As far as like clever door handles go, uh, the one the ones in old Volvos were I thought were kind of cool. Uh, where, you know the, so Volvo interiors of the eighties were very like square and slab sided. So there was basically in a rectangular indentation for the armrest. Um, in the door mm -hmm. where your arm would rest, where the power window switches were, etc. Uh, so right where your hand would fall, right before the power window switches, is like what looks like it's the it's like the um, grab handle that you use to pull the door shut. But inside that grab handle was also a like toaster style uh, lever that you would pull back towards yourself. Uh, to open the door. So it was hidden. You couldn't see the door handle. Uh, or you wouldn't even know it was there unless uh, you knew where it was. Kind of like uh, old 911s where they're kind of like seamlessly hidden uh, in the door panel. Mm -hmm. Are you looking this up? Uh, yeah. Like if you just look up like a 85740 interior. 
you'll see like the door, you might even be able to, see, you may not even be able to see it because it probably just looks like the door handle to close, but it's hidden inside the door handle so that. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, I see that. Yeah, you just kind of pull back and it opens. I feel like that's a pretty natural motion and a natural place for it to be because it is located in the same place that you use to close the door. Mm -hmm. So you're also using that place to open the door. It's very Swedish in terms of like logic. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a good answer. I, I don't remember enough inside door handles. Oh my god. Um I, I know I that guess. I know that on like McLaren's it is it is all sculpted very well so that it is natural to open it and then open the door in this weird way. You yeah. know, like so yeah. there is some cleverness there, but again, it's not something you think about because it's just it's Usually a good door handle, I think you don't have to think about. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably one of the main tenets of good car design, uh, at least, or usability. Right. Uh, good usability design in cars is that simple actions don't require thinking. Right. Uh, and in that same way, I guess it applies to all the complaints about um, basic functions being hidden in touch screens. Mm -hmm. um, but... Um, can you think of a car that has what is the most obscure place for a door handle? Mm. Or door release even. I'm sure there are cars where it is like nowhere you would think it would be. Like it's a button I I, like in the middle of the dash. I think TVRs were infamous for it being like very hard to find. Yeah, it's like, like very stupid stock ergonomics. On the steering column or something. Yeah. Uh, like I think there was like a, a door handle on the outside was like on the underside of the mirror or something weird. Oh yeah. Oh weird. Um, the ones in old 911s, it's good design in that it's so seamless. But oh yeah, no one, no had, one can find it. Yeah, no passenger can find it immediately because it looks like a trim piece. Right. Um, and if you're unfamiliar, it literally if you had like you know whatever like let's say you had. Alum aluminum door trim that runs alongside your um, your door panel. It is like it's it's the same tone, and it's just like a rectangular cutout that is seamless and not called out right. in any way. Well, and then also right in the middle of the door panel is the circular lock. Like you rotate for the lock, and that has another yeah. circle around it. So it's like this bullseye. So people just look at that, and they're like touching it and thinking that's how they open <laughs> the door. That's every time. Yeah, that is okay. I have to say that's probably one of the weirdest design elements of that car. That that is how you unlock the door is by turning the knob yeah. on the side of the door. Because before I ever sat in one, I always thought that was just where a roll window handle would have been <laughs> if the car didn't have power windows. It right. was just like a blank. Uh, but it just seems like it seems like such a large visual amount of real estate for such a like what in other cars you just you know pull on a little pull on a little like nub to open uh, a top side the door mm -hmm. um here you have like an entire like four inch plate or however big it is yeah anyways yeah um uh, yeah door locks who needs them who needs them <laughs> Have you ever been in a car where the door lock or and the door latch failed and it would just like the door flipped open while someone was driving? 
Uh, I don't think so, no. That has happened to me at least two times, I think, in my life. Uh, and once was in high school when I was writing in someone who had like, like a, it was truly a jalopy. And <laughs> like he took a, a slightly hard turn. And I think it was like a Buick, I think it was a Buick Century or something. Uh, and he took a hard turn and the driver door flung open. But he just nonchalantly reached out and closed it back as if it were like a normal thing. Oh, that's funny. Um, also, he could take the key out while the car was on. Oh, yeah. My grandfather's big. Chevelle was like that. Yeah. GM quality. Yeah. Uh, um, that same friend eventually got uh, inherited his dad's uh, Toronado. <laughs> I think that's how it's pronounced. I don't think I've ever said the name of that car out loud before. Yeah, but I think that's right. Yeah. It was the, um, the 90s one, too. It was, so it was the newer one. So it was very... It was very sleek. There was a Toronado was like a, in the 90s? Yeah. It was, like, it was like the ultimate Oldsmobile coupe. I thought that was the Cutlass Supreme. No. You would think with the name Supreme, but no. It was the Toronado. Uh, and I think it was built on the same platform as like the Bravada. Like the, the one with the Targa style convertible. Or it wasn't even a Targa. It just had a hoop, hmm. I think. Are you looking this up? Did you yeah. See oh, yeah. I see the ninety-two. Yeah. Hmm. It's like a. It's like an arrow, sleek version of all the other, the same coupe that GM was putting out at that time. Yeah, I think the Cutlass Supreme was better. Like, I think it was a Maybe. more desirable car. I don't know. Whatever I think of, like Oldsmobile now, I either think of the Aurora or I think of. Um, uh, Fargo. Oh yeah, so this is what they made the convertible out of. So we, you sent me a picture of the. This is the Cutlass Supreme. Yeah. Which actually had a cool front end. It did. Like, like it was, but I think that was a more upscale car. Like I think that was a higher tier car than that Toronado. I don't think so. So someone's gonna have to correct us on this, but I think the Toronado was like the ultimate Oldsmobile of that. I don't era. know. And I think this was the middle management version. Oh, no. The Tornado looked, like, very cheap in... No. It was relatively premium over the Cutlass Supreme. I think Cutlass Supreme was always meant to be the, uh, the Everman choice. Hmm. Yeah. The Cutlass... I'll have to call it there, because no one's going to be... We're not going to Google MSRPs here. Uh, Maybe. Or you use Wikipedia. I'm sure it will say, like, this was, like, this was the uh, flagship model. Uh, I think... Before the Borealis. Hmm. I think you might be right. The Toronado was personal luxury. Uh, it looks See? terrible. With a description like that? Yeah. Now, I, I just remember sitting in that car, my friend's car, and thinking... This is, like, very nice for, like, an Oldsmobile. Mm -hmm. um, although another friend, his dad had, like, an old 88. Uh, like, the, I guess, the 90s version. Also the same kind of boxy style. And I remember thinking how different that car was because it had, like... You remember those cars at that time? They'd, would, they'd have, like, crushed velvet interiors. 
but like the seats would be so padded. Yeah. Like they were they were like lazy boys. Pre-rouged. Inserted in cars. Yeah. <laughs> Pre-rouged. It was not good. Uh, I like that design language. In the period, and I cannot I cannot picture an 88, I can't picture any of these. In that period, I liked the Pontiac design language. I liked those like early grand that was better. The early yeah. Grand Ams, like they were very... The cladding actually worked. Well, there wasn't as much, or it was like the car was like actually small, so the cladding wasn't too... Yeah, too like the, the Grand Prix, uh, the Grand Prix, the uh, Grand Am, mm -hmm. like they were kind of like decent looking. Yeah, yeah, they were. Um, and I, the, it, like they always had like really futuristic interiors with like a million buttons. Yeah. Um, and then Pontiac just like, got stung by a bee, the design language did, and it just went terrible quite quickly mm -hmm. after that. Save for the GTO, which wasn't even really... Well, that was so much yet. later, too. Yeah. Um, well, it didn't get any better for the no, rest of the it lineup. Did, no, it did not. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they did try to I, pare back the cladding and stuff at the end, but it was too late. Would you say that the only... And I'm speaking very relatively here... <laughs> Uh, the only redeeming Pontiac from that puffy era was it the Bonneville SSEI? Uh, I I'm only saying that because that's the only name I remember. I would say yeah. I it was very it had like color keyed wheels and it was very sporty looking even though it was the size of a Park Avenue. Yeah, I never liked that Firebird. The last you know. No, like, no, I'm saying, I'm saying, oh. I'm saying, like, oh, I'm trying to consider oh, yeah. other contenders in the lineup, but it was such a, it was already a sad lineup by the '90s. Yeah, they didn't have a personally, well, that, personal that Firebird, luxury. the the '90s Firebird, where it got rounded slightly. Yeah, I didn't think that was too bad, and it had the same inset square lights, um, as the Cutlass Supreme that you just showed me. GM like, well, I'm talking they, about the final generation Firebird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was not good. It was yeah. very puffy and yeah. claddy. Um, but back to like the headlights briefly. Uh, GM designed like that tiny square, non-sealed headlight uh, that they would like put in an array of lights. Yeah. Like, in that. Like the and Chiron. They used it everywhere. Yeah. 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 Like in the Chiron. It on. Yeah, that's what it looks like. And they used it on so many models, and it was actually a good move because it made. So many cars look sleeker than they would yeah. have otherwise. Yeah, it's cool that there was like these restrictions, and they designed around them and found cool ways to do it. Yeah, I actually kind of wonder if like those those were like tiny sealed beams, or if like there was a bulb, like a removable bulb, uh, or is a lens for a bulb. Um, I didn't see them in any other car, mm. I guess. So. Maybe not. So, anyways, switching gears, I had a really random Tesla question, not related to yes. any Tesla current events uh, no. at all, at all. But um, so, our friend Drew Midnight Dory on Twitter, yeah, he had a poll this week on Twitter, and mm -hmm. it was like, if you choose between uh, a Taycan Turbo and a Tesla Model S, and it was yeah. like ninety percent. Tycan, of course. Yeah, and I like for me, I I still voted Tycan. It doesn't matter. But I was like, yeah. I was. It was like close. It was close. Yeah. And so, 
I think after the poll closed, he was like, yeah, I really want to talk to the people that like were in that 15% that voted for the Model S. And, you know, just devil's advocate, I could think of why I would choose a Model S. I'm not saying I would, but like, what would would your choice be and why? Okay, so my choice would be uh, the Taycan, obviously. But I say obviously because after every review that you've read of the Taycan, and a lot of people have tried to be um, very pragmatic about evaluating the car, meaning like, oh, you know, Tesla has, uh, or rather Porsche has created this car with all of these like efficiency uh, advancements, yet somehow the car doesn't have its intended range or it doesn't ha- beat the range of the best car on the market, right? Or the, the okay. car with the okay. longest okay. All range. Right, all right, all right. I'm gonna, but I'm, wait, wait, hang on a second. I do have a point to this. Uh, but I at understand the end of the day, what it is, and no one I would like to undercut it wait, before wait, you get to it. Wait, 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 wait. But no one ever ends the article in this way. But at the end of the day, despite all of this, which car would you still drive home in? And I think if you asked anyone who wrote any of those articles, they'd say the Taycan. I don't uh, think that's true. I, because here's the thing, if you're buying a premium EV, like you're not just buying it for the range. At the end of the day, if you're going to do that, just buy a Bolt. Uh, like it doesn't make sense if you're doing this for efficiency sake. You're buying it for an experience. Uh, like a Model S, even if you're not a car person, uh, at one point it was an experience because um, it was the best EV on the market. Uh, but I would assume and i've driven both model s now and a tycon and i the differences are vast as far as personal driving experience goes or just like the sensations you get from driving it uh and maybe it is the noise which may be amplified just slightly to give you that sensation the steering is a little bit better but also like it gives you kind of a sense of occasion too just like the design and the newness of it and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that it has almost a hundred miles less range than the best Tesla, I don't think is the reason why you should uh, deny how good it is uh, because it's not the point. So that's why I choose the Taycan in this situation okay so i was going to amend the question to say let's say it's a two-year lease so if tesla is taking liberties with the battery life to deliver more range and stuff like that's not factoring yeah. the question i i would choose the tycan just because i'm like a porsche nerd and stuff and i do sure, think of course. you know it is we're biased like, right of course and, and the like the connection to history and the, the dedication they have towards like the handling and driving experience i find yeah cool but reasons i could consider the model s um Definitely, if it's not the range, it's the supercharger network. I mean, you can say, oh, range doesn't matter. But when you don't have any alternative to the supercharger network, range is going to matter. I just think here's the thing, though, about that is that when you're buying this $70,000 to $120,000 car, uh, that your options are not limited. You're not like someone who has this limited budget and you have to have this car and it has to do everything. I 
maybe in some cases, maybe you live in an urban dense city, like you're in San Francisco and this is your one car and you have to go down to Silicon Valley from the city or something. Um, okay, I guess I could see that use case, although the Taycan would accomplish that need just as well, I suppose. Um, I don't know, like, here's the thing is, I would, ag I would agree that like, the more range you can squeeze out, the better. I don't know where the threshold is, though, as far as like usefulness goes. As in, okay, but the supercharged uh, network is useful. If you're in California, if you want to drive San Francisco to LA, yeah, I agree. I agree with that. But I, I would say, like, you're in that in that case, you're using an extreme benefit to cast benefit over the entire idea of the product, meaning that. For 75 to, I would say, almost 90% of people who, like their use case for this car, both cars do the, can do the same thing. Uh, and I don't think range is everything. Like, I, I don't think range is you everything. Of, I don't think range is you everything. You make fun of me uh, for Yeah, how, you're a bad like, example because you don't leave your neighborhood. <laughs> I don't think range is everything, but what I'm saying is range with the supercharger network like is a lot. Like, If you don't have the range and you don't have the network, uh, yeah, if you're like a traveling salesman it's, it's, who has to, it's. I just feel like that's not like the end all be all. I think range anxiety, obviously, a very real thing, and especially on uh, shorter range EVs, that is especially a sensitive um, topic because you know, eighty miles, that's pretty borderline as far as usefulness goes. Um, but when you're talking about two hundred mile plus ranges, I don't know. I think you you cross into a certain threshold. Okay, the supercharger network is what you're talking about. You're talking about... Like, I'm talking about... This, like, yes. Daisy chaining yourself into another city. Yes. Um, Being able to but, easily easily find and locate chargers that will just work with your car and give you good things. Like, yes, there are places to charge non-Tesla EVs, but it is, it is kind I think of... That's, I think it's great. I just think that at the end of the day that is still just kind of like a more a more or less a minor point like they've taken the like i think that was a great marketing exercise as in uh like they've taken people's ultimate worries about evs range they've wrapped it around uh the idea of what the car represents freedom and the ability to traverse the nation uh and then they have now applied like the future to it by adding uh, nationwide networks for you to like to travel within, but that's fine. But like for most people, I don't think that is necessarily an amazing thing, like a life changing thing. Like I think it's great if you're you 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 stated what you wanted to say about supercharger not being important. But you know how many people buy a car based on purely pragmatic reasons, it's probably less than 20%. Everyone buys a pickup truck because they think they're going to go and be Al Borland off-road. Everyone buys, people buy a Corvette or a GT3 because they think they're going to be a race car driver. I and would, people are not buying a car that they, like, don't think that they can just have this escapism. Like, if you're buying a car that you know that you cannot drive into the next state, that is disappointing. Like, that is, like, why have a car that can't do that, that can't drive to Oklahoma or whatever. In Texas, it is a very long way to any other state. I would say, okay, unsubstantiated. I'm not saying everyone's going to do that, but I'm saying to know that you can't 
that like without facing a lot of hassle and annoyance is like that is that is a hit against the appeal. Ah, uh, I'm not saying it's the I most guess. important thing, but it, you have to like concede that that hurts the appeal when it's like, oh, I cannot drive to Arizona in this car without like doing a lot of research and facing a lot of hardship and it being really annoying. If we can dial it back just a little bit, mm-hmm. um, like <laughs> here's the thing: is that like EVs? I think EVs are not the end all be all solution for. Like, they're not going to be the replacement for, intelligent, like, ICE cars. Uh, like, I think that they are meant to be the better city and just slightly added the city car. Mm-hmm. And that it's amazing that we have this side benefit that with some of them, you can actually go across city lines, even state lines. Um but I think that's a fringe benefit. Like, I don't think that's the goal. Like, I think the goal is to revolutionize, like, inner city travel. Like, where pollution is. Where, like, where you get the worst gas mileage. Like, I think that that's the problem you're trying to solve. And that the supercharger network is great. But it is a marketing exercise. It is a fringe benefit. Uh, and if you really need to travel, like, if you're forcing yourself to own a car that and you need to travel across cities, I don't know why you're buying an EV anyways. Mm-hmm. Like, I think you're just trying to prove a point when you don't need to. Yeah. Um, then you just buy, you have two cars. You have your, uh, and I actually, I know people who have a Model S and they have their, who they go back from Houston to Austin in it, but they also have like a normal car. Mm. Uh, and I think that's more likely the case in most cities uh, than not. Okay, so you will have- in my hypothetical why I would choose that Tesla, which again, yeah. I'm not, I have listed one reason mm-hmm, <laughs> you have mm-hmm, fought mm-hmm. me to death on wrongly. Yes. Uh, <laughs> another reason uh, would be, I think if you are doing city driving, urban driving, like I think it's going to come mostly down to preference between the two. Like I think the driving sure. dynamics differences are, are somewhat minor. Sure. I, the sportiness of the Taycan doesn't matter when you're just puttering around in traffic. Right. Uh, if anything, like the more cocooned seating and everything is going to be more annoying if you're running around errands and getting in and out and doing that. But if I might counter mm-hmm. with, if you were to get into an accident with, let's say, a 2012 Tesla versus a just-released Taycan, which car do you think might be easier to get fixed currently i'm sure i think it would yeah it would be the porsche (laughs) i'm sure it is i like well even at the end of the day yeah the like you have to give um acknowledgement to the fact that tesla did pave the way for the tycon to exist and now a major manufacturer with like all of the engineering knowledge all of the production knowledge all of the resources like has come in to pick off uh, the baton, however unwillingly uh, Tesla is willing to hand it over. Yeah. Um, no, this... And, but, so so yeah. the entire time you were saying, actually, the supercharger network isn't that good, I thought that was a, not a great argument. But this is very good. I am on board with this. And even if the Taycan is not going to get fixed quickly, more quickly or say to take the same amount of time, at least I have the confidence that like Porsche would give me a good loaner car 
Yeah. And Tesla, I really don't know. I have no idea. Like, I feel like no one would answer, even answer the phone. That, nope. like, that's my concern. So that is extremely yeah. valid. That, even if it took nine months to repair the Taycan, I'd probably be driving like, you know, a Macan Turbo or, or something pretty good for that yeah. time, which again, you would not be in an EV. But, uh, I, at least you would know that like, they care <laughs> yeah um and they'd be working on it and they would do they would try to make it right and i that do not get the impression that tesla would do that yeah because I, th- I feel like tesla is still filling in some of the blanks as far as like the car ownership experience goes they focused primarily on engineering and developing a product but what about when the product is in use and when it fails because it's a win and not if situation. Well, the problem also what is happens? so much of Tesla is built around like we need five times the growth in four years. So yeah, what can we do to like what can we do to be five times more profitable? It's like oh, we have to be working on all this other stuff. Yeah. Um, but so the last thing I would the last reason why maybe a Model S would be more compelling than a Taycan. I'm this doesn't really apply if I'm saying it's a two year lease. So let's say you're buying it outright for whatever stupid reason just for this one stupid argument uh i don't know i think i think the taikin will be replaced by better things more interesting things and i i don't know like the current model s might still be new for six more years or something and maybe that's an appeal to someone that like it will be like this timeless thing whereas the the taikin's going to be an old pc in three years i would actually so I, that's a good point, but I almost, because the Model S is essentially, it's a piece of tech. Uh, but they, but they both that, are, and the test, like maybe the Tesla will be iconic. If they're still selling the same one, it will be like, you know, I, I guess it's more vain to say you'll still have the new one. But like if they're still selling the same thing in five or six years, you will still have this package, whereas the Taycan might be get an update in two years and then a a redesign and then in you know five years it's like the first ones are like oh those were a joke compared to the ones now i would almost see that eventually tesla just fades the model s out and up markets the smaller cars um because those despite having similar underpinnings um, are viewed as new and fresh yeah. in the Model S, you can only refresh it so often. Uh, in fact, it's only gone through one. Face, like one face. One major, one major refresh. I know they do like yeah. lots of little things and software yeah. and, and yeah. interior stuff. Yeah. So mentally, like, you know, perhaps the, even if it is still a viable product, um, maybe they shift money and production uh, efforts into upmarketing the Model 3, the Model X, the Model Y. I mean, it is, we're living in the age of uh, CUVs, SUVs. So, yeah, that's uh, true. Maybe that's where they put the money instead of in uh, the declining sedan market. Or, or if they develop, because I feel like the Model X has not taken off like as like a luxury Range Rover alternative whereas now, whereas this whereas the Model S is like a very compelling S-Class alternative yeah I wonder 
I, the Model X is such a weird proposition. Um, I mean, it is a, it's a premium CUV, SUV thing, uh, but it's not very good looking. It's not timeless. I actually, I actually do think that the Model S is kind of timeless. Yeah. Like, you know, I look at the 2012 car that's going on eight years now. I think it looks pretty good still. It does. Um, it's a very inoffensive design. Uh, it and it was almost ahead of its time in a way. I, I, mean, I think inoffensive. A, you are undermining it. I think it was a very, a very good design, like very broad-shouldered and like muscular yeah. in ways. Well, I was about to say, like it. It is. It was of the first, like big, four-door coupe designs, which, uh, even though we cringe just slightly at the notion of calling all things coupes uh, now just because they have four doors uh, or just because they have a certain rake to the rear. I think the Model S is almost more like a four-door coupe than it is a sedan um, because it's so rakish in the back. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the design, the concept of the Model S and the production Panorama, Panamera, Panamera does, like, debuted in the same year, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and one of them was much more successful design-wise, and it was not yes, the Panamera. I would agree. I yeah, mean, they both, I would they agree. both set out, we're talking purely visually, they both set out to yeah. do the same thing. It'd be a large, executive, sleek-looking car. I and, would say, though, and I don't mean to say that, like, uh, unoffensive is downplaying anything. I think unoffensive, to me at least, means uh, more likely, more chances for timelessness like as in yeah in 10 years it'll, it'll still be viewed kindly because okay because i because i hear unoffensive and i and i'm hearing like they didn't take any boring. chances which i don't think uh, is true yeah no i wouldn't i would say that i would say mm, chance well okay what do you consider chances on that car though like i wouldn't say that it was a bold or daring design i think like they took extremely lot it they took like audi-esque like uh, steps as far as design goes because Audis, I wouldn't have one, but I do think that the designs pre, I don't know, 2012? I don't know what year to peg it at, but there was a time when uh, their design language was just so unoffensive, meaning that it looks just as good then as it does now. Yeah, like I, yeah, I was sending you right. I think I think twenty thirteen or twelve was like the end of that. Yes, yeah, um, when they started getting creases and uh, aggressive. Right. Well, so I think there's. I, I think looking at the Model S, there's two ways. I'm not going to say there's like giant risks everywhere. I think this the detailing, the surface, like the the shape of the headlights and all that stuff, that's one thing. But the form, the form of it, like the shape of the body, the way that it is sculpted, I think was pretty revolutionary. I mean, it was more like an Aston Martin than it was like a 7 Series or an S-Class. Yeah. You know? And, and I think yeah. bringing I'm that... I'm going to asterisk that because I don't think the face was particularly good looking. I'm not talking about the face. I'm talking about the form of the entire, like the shape of sure. the body was okay. revolutionary for a full-size luxury sedan. And the way and that now it you pulled have... it off, the way that it pulled it off, which the Panamera shows us is not easy to make like a sports car big, 
Yeah. It's not. Well, now the Panamera has the same shape, and the A7 has the same shape, and anything, anything that is a Ford Coupe essentially has the same shape now. Um, I mean, the CLS did not have that shape. No, the CLS. You're correct in that. I would say then a coupe with a hatch. But still, uh, the the rear like haunches on you know like yeah, yeah it was it, good. It was good. It's very pronounced on the Model S. Like yeah. it's. No, Maybe no, no, no. an A7 I, has that now. Acknowledgements Maybe. are given to what it was when it came out. Now what's next, I guess. Uh, yeah, I agree. Uh, I agree. So that's that. Um, but <laughs> if, you're, if you want to talk about like an EV with like, like daring design, and it may and could have gone anyway, I, this may or may not be a hot take, but I think the ELR... Oh yeah, bold and daring. Yeah, it did not sell. No, no. Um, I see one on occasion. Some guy in my neighborhood has one, uh, and that's the only one that I ever see on the road. I have driven one. Oh, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a neat car. Um, the seat was so tall. I didn't like that. Like the seat was really tall. Like there was no headroom at all because of the amount the sunroof intruded and how high the seat was. But um, it's a nice car. Like it's like a very very plush Golf or not Golf Volt. Yeah, Volt. Yeah, yeah. Uh, It looks like a like a stubbier um, CTS of that era, coupe. Yeah, and that and that was that was a great great design. Yeah, yeah. So. I would say, and that was following more company design language than trying to be a, I guess, a uh, revolutionary yeah, but, EV, groundbreaking EV thing. But Right. Uh, but that was also like a really weird time when manufacturers were trying to enter the uh, electrified luxury thing, because that was the HS250H era. It was uh, where we had all of these hybrids and... I, hybrids for the most part, because I guess the the Bolt was technically, or not the Bolt, the ELR. The ELR and the Volt a, was a plug-in hybrid. It was pretty revolutionary. It was a plug-in hybrid. Keep in mind that like it was a series hybrid. When was but uh, it had a it had an electric only range of forty miles, which was four times that of the Prius plug-in up until sure. up until what now? Yeah, yeah. Well, Toyota's always had like such a measured approach to right, EVs, right. but I mean the the Volt uh, was revolutionary. Oh yeah, yeah, totally, totally. And the ELR rode on those piggybacks by being worse <laughs> than the Well, it, it it was the Corvette versus XLR uh, like thing again, like where, where the more expensive a, one is worse. Yeah, the more expensive one is somehow just remarkably worse, more compromised. To the point, yeah, to the point to where like if you break a tail light, you total the car. Yeah. Well, the XLR also like they had to use their North Star engine, so it's not as good and and. And whatever and et cetera. Yeah. But yeah. it's compromised to a fault. And they found out like, oh, like luxury and EV is very hard because luxury adds weight, weight's the enemy of yeah. electric. Blah, well, blah. and Toyota, who was the master of all of that, found that also the hard way with the the HS two fifty H in that they thought they'd capitalize on the popularity with uh regardless of economic situation people wanted a prius so that must mean if you took essentially a corolla it was actually the toyota avensis in japan but uh but basically a big corolla and add 
weight and leather and sound deadening to it that it'll fly off the shelves and it didn't. I mean, I wonder, I would love to see like a design study of like what was rejected to make the HS250H. Like I think that would have been more successful if it was closer to a Prius. Oh yeah, totally. I always thought that too when that car you know, came like, out. Like I, I wonder what it would have been like if it was, I'm not going to say a rebadged Prius, but like if you kept the roof line, well, if you kept some aspects of the design but made it somehow better. somehow missed the mark. They developed the mark and then they missed it uh, in that, like the reason why the Prius was successful was because it looked so radical and different. And then mm -hmm. they released a premium version of that that looked just like a compact sedan. It looked like the cheapest Lexa you, Lexus you've yeah, ever seen like in your they life. They just completely, like they, they should have made it so weird looking. Like even if it wasn't mm -hmm. based on the Prius, uh, they should have just made it like weird. Like, you know, I don't know yeah. what, like a, an Aztec Lexus of some kind. I think it would have actually done better, but. Or like the Mirai or the Prius Prime, you know, if we look at what they yeah, have currently. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, people I, are, people are still into it. Like the Prius Prime is weird looking. Uh, I think the Prius Prime looks awesome. People like it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, I think that we might be coming up on a podcast here. Uh, oh, even after I cut out all of this? I think that so. we're at, my timer says an hour 13. Uh, well, I think we've got a podcast. Yeah, um, we could call it that. I guess. Um, do follow us on Instagram at newfor96. And, and Twitter. Twitter. Apparently. Same thing. Also at newfor96. Same content. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> email us, I guess, if that's your thing at newfor96 at aol.com but mm -hmm. actually gmail yeah um, spelled out. thanks for listening yeah thank you all right goodbye bye, bye.